As we come to the close of this letter to Timothy, the beloved son, spiritual son of Paul, we see that Paul is in the final lap of the long race which has been his life and ministry. He's in those last few meters. The finish line is within his sight. He's about to cross over. And so while his life is coming to an end and his race is almost over, Timothy's, however, will continue. And what we're going to find in these last uh, pieces of exhortation, these final instructions and greetings, are some very important lessons for us. Very important lessons from these last recorded words of Paul, the apostle of the Lord, the faithful apostle. Words that are going to encourage you and I on how to finish this Christian life well. The example he sets for us is a great example of what that is going to look like and how to hold fast to the blessed hope that all true followers of Jesus Christ long for. Let's turn to God's Word, looking at the sixth verse of Timothy uh, chapter 4. Hear the words of the Lord. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books. And above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. These are the words of the Lord. This letter to Timothy is an intensely personal letter. You can feel the heart of the spiritual father writing to his spiritual son in the faith. And there's no question at all that, that Paul's death, his impending death, just kind of looms large uh, over all that he's writing in this letter. 
Paul was in chains, as we well know. He's awaiting the executioner's sword. He's expressed his great concern for Timothy in this letter. He wants Timothy to endure in the faith, to endure suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He wants him to persevere. He wants him to hold fast to the faith, this, to, to this good deposit that's been entrusted to him. And he wants Timothy, above all, to follow his example, especially his example in suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you recall from last week's teaching, Paul charges Timothy with something important. The thing that is to be his priority in ministry. Timothy is to preach the word. Not his own words. He is to preach the word of the living God. And the charge is urgent. It's urgent considering the present situation, the present context of ministry that Paul knows that Timothy finds himself in. The contemporary scene where people don't want to listen to sound doctrine. They don't want to hold to the words of the truth. They have itching ears. And what are they doing if not pursuing their own teachers to suit their own needs and their own passions? Those are the very uh, people that Timothy's called to minister to and preach. So in these final components of the charge, Paul calls him to faithfulness. He calls him to boldness. He gives him four more instructions. Tells him to be sober-minded. To always be self-controlled. To endure suffering. Because if Timothy is going to be faithful to this charge to preach the word, you better believe he's going to face opposition. It's undeniable. Timothy's to do the work of an evangelist. That means preaching the gospel must become his life's work and his life's mission. They don't want to hear the true gospel, so he needs to be faithful to continually herald it. And lastly, he charges with him with this, to fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Difficult days are ahead. Fulfill your ministry. Mine is coming to a close. But Timothy, yours is continuing. Be diligent in fulfilling all that you've been called to do. And what follows... In just a few brief verses that we've read there, brothers and sisters, is a master class on how to finish this Christian life well. We would all do well to heed these instructions. First of all, I want you to see in verse 6 that Paul discusses here his present reality. He writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's expressing here with this vivid language his present reality. He's going to die. He knows his time is short. It is already written. He says, I am already, present tense, being poured out as a drink offering. Now this imagery is all about sacrifice. It comes from the Old Testament sacrificial System. You'll read in Exodus, you'll read in Leviticus, you'll read in Numbers the instructions the Lord gave concerning the sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of the Lamb, whether it was the daily offerings or the offerings on the Day of Atonement. The Lamb would be slaughtered, would be sacrificed on the altar. And at the end of that sacrifice, a drink offering would be presented to the Lord. Wine would be poured out at the base of the altar unto the Lord. It was part of 
this ritual sacrifice. And though Paul wasn't dead yet, he's writing as if the end has already begun. But we know from what Paul has described about his life, he saw his entire life as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Not just this last moment of sacrifice, not just this last moment of the suffering that he's enduring, but his entire life. And not just his life, but every believer's life is one of sacrifice. Isn't that what he writes instructing the believers in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice. All of our life should be one of sacrifice unto the Lord. Offered up to the Lord. He says that is your spiritual worship. And he uses the same language we see here in his letter to Timothy in another one of his letters. Written to the church at Philippi. And as he's writing there, he's in another imprisonment. This is his first imprisonment. He's under house arrest. And at this point, he doesn't know if the end is near there. We know it's not, right? Because he continues to write. He continues to preach the gospel. He's released. But at the time of the writing of that letter, he didn't know. And look what he writes in chapter 3 of Philippians, verses 16 and 17. He writes, holding fast to the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Look at this. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. That's how he viewed his whole life. It was an offering to the Lord, a sacrifice to the Lord. He had poured out his life for Christ He had spent his life for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and, and here he is as his life is drawing to a close. He sees his life as this final act, these final moments of the ceremonial sacrifice. He is a drink offering unto our Lord being poured out. And he writes here also, the time of my departure has come. Now, That phrase, departure, there is is maritime imagery. As when a ship is loosed from its moorings at dock and it's set out to sail at sea. He sees here now the end of his life as the beginning of another. He is setting sail. And and Paul's death is going to be the triumphant continuance as he is loosed from the harbor of his suffering in this life. And he is setting sail to the shores of glory. That's how he sees his life in these final moments. He also wrote in Philippians that it was his desire to depart and be with Christ. He writes, for that, that is far better. Isn't that the truth, brothers and sisters? To depart and be with Christ is far better. Far better than living a long and even healthy life here on this earth. It is far better to depart and be with Christ. It is far better to depart from this life and be with Christ even if you and I possessed all of the riches of this world. It's far better. I don't know if you see it like that, but I know that that's how Paul saw it. That's the reality. That is the truth, 100% truth. Far better. That far better was always on the mind of the apostle. It was far better as he's writing to Philippians And you better believe it's far better 
as he finds himself chained in a dank and dark dungeon awaiting his execution. This was now in his sights the far better shores of glory being with Christ. So that's the reality for Paul. But there's also another reality at present here. And this one is concerning Timothy. Because for Paul to die means that he's no longer going to be with Timothy. Timothy's no longer going to have the apostle in his life. Speaking into his life. Pouring into his life. He's not going to be able to write to Paul for encouragement. He's not going to see him again. He's not going to be able to go to him for counsel or for prayer. No more letters from his spiritual father in the faith, from his mentor, from his close and deep friend. Paul's present reality means that it's time for Timothy to step up. He's going to have some big shoes to fill here. All of this letter is about the call and the charge for Timothy to follow Paul's example. So it's time. As Joshua followed Moses and as Elisha came after Elijah. Well, Timothy now is going to have to follow Paul. He must courageously step up and fulfill his ministry. Everything that the Lord called him to. He must also pour out his life for the gospel. He must also live a life that is one of sacrifice unto the Lord. He must be faithful In his generation as Paul was in his. And guess what? You and I must be faithful in ours. You and I are also called. With what Paul is charging Timothy here. To step up and fulfill. What God has called us to do. To be faithful in our generation. To give our life and sacrifice for the gospel. That is not just Paul's call. Not just Timothy's. But every believer's. Every single one of us. The reality is for all of us, just like Timothy's going to lose his spiritual father in the faith, this godly saint of God that had gone before him, we're not always going to have the older faithful saints with us. I came to faith several decades ago, almost four decades ago now. And I can think of godly saints that I look to as an example that are no longer with us here. No longer in my life. There are faithful saints here that are not going to be with us years from now. To our kids, to our teens, to all our younger saints here. Guess what? Your Christian parents aren't going to be with you forever. Their example of faith is not always going to be present in your life. There is going to come a moment when the older generation is going to pass on into glory. And then we're called to step up. And just as they have been faithful in their generation, we must be faithful in ours. This is a sober call for all of us. Every single one of us. We cannot rest on the laurels of the godly saints that have gone before us. We for sure are not going to be able to ride their coattails into glory. The faith they owned is the faith that we must own and possess And be faithful too. We also mean means that we must be diligent preparing the next generation coming up after us. What do you have here if not Paul passing on the torch of the gospel to Timothy? And we saw that in chapter two. What's Paul what's Timothy have to do now? 
He's got to pass that torch on to other faithful men who are going to also be able to teach and instruct others. Parents have a responsibility to pass the torch of the gospel to their kids. We all have a responsibility to pass on our faith and pass the torch of the gospel on to others. Paul writes there, listen, listen to those words. I am already being poured out. Are you pouring yourself out for Christ and His gospel? Are you wasting your life in fruitless pursuits and endeavors? Those are His present realities. But now in verse 7, He writes about His past accomplishments. There's three short expressions there that sum up almost three decades of apostolic ministry. It's it's a compendium of Paul's personal triumphs. He saw his life and ministry here, we're going to see, as a fight, as an athletic contest, and one of strenuous effort and endurance to hold on to the faith. It's his own threefold assessment of his service and ministry to the Lord. Look what he writes here. I have fought the good fight. The good fight. We see already in this letter, this is what he calls and charges Timothy with. with. He charges him to wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare, Timothy. You're in this fight, and and it's the fight of the faith. It's, It's a good fight. There's other fights we shouldn't get into. There's there's other fights and other battles that we need to avoid and stay away from. But the good fight is the one that Timothy's been called to, just as Paul has been called to, and just as each and every one of us has been called to. The Christian life is one of warfare. It's not peacetime. We have peace in the fight, but it's not peacetime. We, We will have peace for all eternity, but not here, not now. What's the good fight? It's the fight for the truth. It's the fight of faith. It's holding on to the truths of the gospel. We're in a fight against Satan and demonic forces that oppose us. We're also opposed by the rebellious people of this world who hate God. Our fight is against false teachers and false teaching as we've seen all through the pastorals. And Paul has been an example of what faithfully fighting the good fight of faith looks like. He lived with a wartime mindset. He was continually instructing God's people on how to fight and wage this good warfare. He summons every believer to to don the armor of God continually so that we could stand against the schemes of the devil. He reminds the believers in his second letter to to, to the church at Corinth, that they have spiritual weapons they need to avail themselves again with in, in their fight against temptation. We're at war. There's a fight that we've been thrust into that we cannot avoid. And Paul was an example of what it looked like to fight the good fight of faith. Remember, he characterized the nature of the ministry that Timothy was called to as that of, of a soldier. He wanted that imagery to be burned in Timothy's mind. You're a soldier. You're at war. You're always on duty. You're never off. And your life needs to be lived pleasing your commanding officer and doing what he tells you to do. 
You look at the life of Paul and what you find is a battle-tested soldier of the cross. Imagine what his armor looked like. His helmet. His breastplate. All of his armor. Bearing the, 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 the gashes and, 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 and the dents and, and the marks of every glancing blow of the enemy. Every single opposition he faced for the gospel. The, the persecution. The suffering. I envisage his, his, his shield. That shield of faith. Just all marked up because of all the fiery darts of the enemy that were extinguished as they came upon that shield. As he held on to his faith in Christ Jesus. His sword, sharp as ever, wielding the sword, the word of God to the very last moment. This was Paul's example to Timothy and an example for us. He gives us this example in verse 16 that we read in our passage today. How, how everyone had deserted him at, at his first defense, right? He, he gets arrested and, and everyone that was with him is gone. He's left alone, he says, at his first defense. But what does he do in that? Does he cower? Does he shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, the, the true gospel? No, he goes, the Lord strengthened me to do what? To preach the gospel. So that all the Gentiles that were present could hear it. Stands his ground as a good soldier. Fighting the good fight of the faith. Now you and I must also wage the good warfare. That we could say. Like Paul as we're drawing near to the end. I have fought the good fight. He goes on. I have finished the race. This is his continual assessment. I have finished the race. Now, when we think of a race, we think of a sprint. We think of a, you know, 100-meter dash or something of that. But, but what's in mind here is something much longer, right? It's the course of one's life. This is a marathon. It's the course that God had set for Paul to run. And Paul says, I've completed my course. I have finished the race. I have finished my race. Everything that God called me to do, I have completed it. I have finished it. Do you know you have a course to run? Do you know that you have a race to run? Every believer does. Look what the writer of Hebrews. Here in the first verse of chapter 12. Here's the exhortation. Let us run with endurance the race. That is set before us. There is a race set before you. There's a race set before me. It's a race. Now this is not a competition against other brothers and sisters. It's not a race against the world, right? It's, it's a course that's been set for us by our sovereign God. And Paul knew that. He knew the Lord had set a course before him. And it, it was his passion to finish that race. To say, I've completed it. Everything he asked me to do, I've done it. Acts 20, 24. Here's what, what Paul writes as he gathers the uh, uh, elders of the church at Ephesus, right? He was on his way to Rome. This was during his first imprisonment. But he didn't know what was going to happen to him there. But he writes this in, in Acts 20. This is what he says, and Luke records. He 
writes, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. If only I could finish it to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul made it his passion and mission in life to finish the course of his life that God had given to him. And I pray that we would make that the passion and mission of our own life. Whatever God has called you to, whatever race He's called you to run, whatever course He has set before you, that you would be faithful to complete it and that you'd run it with endurance. And then His final assessment there, He says, I have kept the faith. I've kept it. What was faithfully entrusted to Him for safekeeping, He's kept it. He's guarded it. He has held to it. He has stirred firm in it. He preserved the purity of the gospel that was entrusted to him. He preached it. He lived it. He passed it on to others. And he's given his life for it. And he will give his life ultimately for it. This gospel-saturated life. Holding the treasure of the gospel. And now Timothy has been charged with keeping it as well. And just as Paul has kept it, Timothy's charged with keeping it now. And so are we. Now this is the summary of Paul's life and ministry. He's counting these three things as his personal triumphs. This is his assessment. But you know that that not everyone shared this assessment of Paul's life and ministry. Not even every believer shared this particular assessment of Paul's. I mean, it goes even back to what he wrote in his letter uh, of Philippians there. There in Philippians, he, he, in Philippians 3, he shares this comprehensive resume of his life. Like, Here are my achievements before he came to faith in Christ. I was a Pharisee, man. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the poster child of what a faithful Jewish follower of Jesus, uh, a follower of, of, of God and, and the Torah and the law and the prophets. This is what it looked like. I was zealous for God. I was pursuing all of these things like he was the rising star in his Jewish tradition. And then he comes to faith in Christ and he says, I left all of that behind. In fact, he goes, I count it as rubbish. I count it as loss. But what did others think about him? They thought he wasted his life. He was throwing his life away. Look what you were. Now you've abandoned it and, and, and you're leaving it for this Jesus? For this gospel that you're preaching? No, they didn't assess his life as triumph, but as defeat and loss. But that wasn't all. There were many who thought that Paul's labors were in vain. It wasn't just that he threw his life away, but, but all that he had done in the name of Jesus was also a loss. Here's this great apostle of the Lord. Here, here's the dude that had planted all these churches throughout the Roman Empire. Now where does he find himself? Imprisoned. Awaiting his execution. And what of all these churches that he's planted? Well, some of them are in shambles. All these false teachers have... Have, have run roughshod over the church. This whole idea of the church was, was called into question. Would it even survive after Paul's death? 
Would the gospel continue to advance and go on? They thought, Paul, well, what a waste. All of this was for nothing. He's going to die. And the churches are going to shut down. That was their assessment of Paul. He'd thrown his life away, his labors were in vain, his ministry was wasted. All for nothing. So he shares these things with Timothy to encourage him. Because guess what's going to happen to Timothy? The same thing that happened to Paul. He's going to be laboring. He's going to be working. He's going to be preaching the word and preaching the gospel. And there are going to be others that say, Timothy, you're wasting your time. You're throwing your life away. This is a fruitless cause. I know we glamorize the first century church, but I think we've made it very clear the first century church was nothing to romanticize. There was a lot of stuff going on there. You merely read Corinthians, you know, and you go, oh, well, that's one jacked up church because it's full of jacked up people, just like it is today. But Timothy's going to face the same things that Paul faced. It's the same thing you and I face today, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Isn't that what the world says of us? You're fools for following Jesus. You're throwing your life away following the book, following the word of God, the commandments of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a foolish thing to preach. That's a fool's errand. This world continually lies to us and beckons us away from giving our life and sacrifice to Jesus and say, stop wasting your time in that. There's all this other stuff to enjoy. That doesn't have any value. And Paul knows that Timothy is going to be tempted the same way you and I are tempted. He's going to hear the same garbage from the world telling him, don't waste your time in that. Don't give yourself to that. Don't throw your life away. It's the temptation our young people face continually. Our kids are going to hear continually. That's not worth it. And Paul says, it's worth it all. It's worth it all. It's not a waste. Any life lived for the glory of God and for the name and fame of Jesus Christ is worth it. It's not a waste. And you need to know that. You need to have that in your heart. You need to embrace the gospel that way. So that's why Paul can assess his life and go, all that suffering, all that pain, all the hardship, all that he endured, it's worth it. I fought the good fight. I finished the course of my life. I kept the faith. Timothy, you got to do the same thing. Follow my example. Brothers and sisters, follow that example. Give yourself fully over to Christ. Live your life and sacrifice for the only thing that matters. The only thing that is worth it all. It's not a waste. You're going to be tempted that way. I'm tempted that way. We all are. It's not. It's not. Paul knew he hadn't wasted his life. And that's why he writes in verse 8, 
Talked about his present reality, his past accomplishments, and now here's the grounding of Paul's future hope. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, what's left for Paul? He's in the last moments, right? Those last few meters, man, that the finish line is in sight. What's left is the prize. It's the prize for finishing well. And it's, 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 this is a statement of Paul's singular focus in life and ministry. He was always looking at that. His eyes were always on the prize. Right in Philippians, he writes of, of, of the upward call of the prize, which was what? It's Christ. It's to know Him. To know Him fully. His eyes were always on that. So he knew, hey, it's far better to depart. I get the prize. The fullness of the prize. So he's looking at that, right? He calls it here the crown of righteousness. He says, that's what's waiting for me. That's what's laid up for me in glory. Once I depart from this life, once I cast off from this, these shores, that's what I'm looking at. That's what I'm going after. But notice, it's not a crown of personal glory. He's not glorying in his accomplishments. He's not saying, I'm getting a crown because I was an amazing apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nope. It's the crown of righteousness, he says, which Jesus, the righteous judge, will award to him at his coming on that day. What's he saying? Well, we already know, and he already knew, he's been made righteous. He's, he's already got righteousness through his faith in Jesus Christ. He'd always had it. And even at this point, what's he doing but trusting in the righteousness of Christ? He's not saying, I'm going to get it on that day. But he'll enter into the permanent state of the righteousness that he already has now on that day. And so will all of us who love and long for his appearing. Who've trusted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. On that day, right, we will be clothed with the white robes of righteousness. And the imagery that we see in Revelation. And Paul says, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking ahead to. That is the permanent reality of righteousness that I know I already possess here in Christ. I will have it fully and finally and completely on that day. Think about how Nero, the wicked and cruel emperor, who historians say is the one who sentenced Paul to execution. The one who blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. And Paul is rotting in this dungeon. And, and, and he'd been declared guilty. He'd been declared guilty. But, but there's going to be a glorious reversal coming, isn't there? Paul's going to be vindicated on that day. When he stands face to face with the righteous judge, what is he going to hear? Not guilty. He's righteous. He's righteous. He's going to be vindicated. But not just him. All of us will be as well. All of us will be as well. That same vindication awaits all of us. And that is the confidence, confidence every single believer should have. If you've been justified in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ's righteousness alone, then you and I should love and long for His appearing. 
We should have confidence on that day. Not worry, not doubt. Now, if you're trusting in your own righteousness, there's no confidence in that. You've got a lot to worry about. There's no assurance in your own righteousness. But there's plenty in Christ's. That's why John could write in, in his letter in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There'll be no shame at his coming if you abide in him, if you're trusting in him, if you're resting on his righteousness and his finished work. We have confidence. Paul now is spurring Timothy to faithfulness by, by having him fix his eyes on the prize like Paul had done his entire life. Christ appearing is a motivating hope for Timothy. And it's a motivating hope for every follower of Jesus Christ, for every one of us. So John also writes in chapter 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's a motivation. That's a motivation to a life of holiness, of, of godliness, of purity, knowing that when he appears, we're going to see him face to we're going to behold him. We're going to glory in the one who rescued us and saved us. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian and pastor, wrote that, that this was a prayer of his. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So that, that, that's what his gaze would be on. No matter what he looked at, no matter what he looked at here in the world, his eyes would be fixed on the prize, fixed on glory, fixed on eternity. He did not ground his satisfaction or fulfillment on anything here but everything in heaven. He longed for that day. He endured unimaginable suffering for Christ because his hope was not in this life. His hope was not in the here and now. He wasn't laying up treasure here but in heaven. You and I need to do the very same I'm going to ask you, do you long for his appearing? Do you long for it? Do you long for his coming? Do you long for the day when you'll stand before him face to face? And your eyes will behold the one who loved you from all eternity. The one who shed his blood for your forgiveness. To secure your peace with God and salvation. The one who's clothed you with his righteousness. Do you long for his appearing? I don't know how much time you and I give to thinking about his appearing. But it seems like it was continually on Paul's mind. And it should be on ours, brothers and sisters. Long for him more than you long for the pleasures of this earth. That's how you finish this life well. Being a faithful soldier of the cross. Running the course that God has set before you. Keeping the faith. And setting your hope on the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ.
That's finishing. And we're going to briefly look at the close of this chapter here. It's going to give us a, just a short glimpse into Paul's emotional state. It's, a, frankly, a passage of Scripture that really humanizes this great apostle of the Lord in a profound way. I was reading this passage this week, and tears were welling up in my eyes, thinking, it's kind of putting myself in Paul's position, just kind of feeling like what he must have felt in that moment as he's writing these things and the things he's expressing here and what they, what they represent for Paul. These are the last of his recorded words, so we shouldn't brush them off just because he's mentioning names and giving farewells and greetings or any of these things. But let's look, at, first of all, one of the main things that he requests here. He's requesting the presence of his friends. Now, he's already mentioned in this letter earlier on that many deserted him. Remember when he writes, all in Asia, right? That's a grand statement. Everybody deserted me. Right? Nobody stuck around. He's already told us that his first de defense, right? He was left just standing there by himself. He was on his own. Right? He, he knew the pain of desertion and betrayal. Then he mentions Demas. Now, we, we read that name, and if you're not familiar with it, the way it's written here, you're thinking, well, who cares? Right? He left the faith. He abandoned Paul. But, but Demas is mentioned in Colossians, and he's mentioned in Philemon. He was a fellow worker of Paul. This was his ministry companion. He traveled with Paul. He lived with Paul. He was with him all the time. And now, this happens. Paul's arrested, and they're in Rome. And Demas says, I'm heading to Thessalonica. Now, this doesn't mean he apostatized from the faith. But what it means is he lacked incredible courage here. The time came to stand for Christ, this crucial moment to stand firm in the faith and stand alongside the apostle, and he bolted. He took off. How tragic that is. That the final word we have on Demas, the fellow worker, is he left. When things got tough, when times got tough, he bailed. You ever had friends like that? Things got hard, and they're gone. Well, that's what Paul was feeling in this particular moment. Then he mentions Cretans and Titus. And they also left. Now, he's not saying anything bad about them. He's not really giving any detail about them, other than they moved on to other ministry contexts. They were with him, and, and they had moved on. They had left Paul was in prison, and they're continuing on in the work of the ministry. We're going to read the letter to Titus here, so presumably his, his ministry there had come to an end, and he was, he was off somewhere else now, and, and Paul's finding himself alone. Antichicus, that was also with him, what's he doing now? Well, he's sending him to Ephesus, probably with this letter. He was probably the one delivering this letter to Timothy. And as Timothy then gets to travel to Rome, then he's going to remain in place there, taking over the work of the ministry. He mentions that only Luke, his faithful friend, is left with him. I, I read that and I go, hey, only Luke's with me. I kind of, he's not really shrugging his shoulder. Right? Luke was a faithful brother, right? A close companion. He was always with Paul. That's a friend that loves like a brother, more than a brother. 
right? Sticks closer than a brother. He was with Paul. He did not leave Paul's side uh, during all of this, right? But the apostle is lonely. He is longing for the company of his friends, his close companions, his ministry partners, his brothers. He needs their refreshment. He needs their encouragement. How important that is for all of us, right? And, and what does he do? He longs that his beloved son in the faith would come to him soon. Now, soon is not next day, right? This was months of travel for Timothy to get from Ephesus to Rome, over land, by sea. Lots of travel, hardship, danger, right? He tells them, hey, watch this guy. When you go through Troas, this dude opposed me. Alexander the coppersmith. Now, he's probably the one who turned Paul in. He was probably an informer. And he's probably the one who had him surrender to the Roman authorities, right? And he says, he opposed me. He opposed the message. He did me great harm. Watch out for him. But he wants Timothy to come from him. Right at the opening of the letter, what's in Paul express? Right in his greeting, I long to see you. I long to see you. He needed the encouragement of his brothers. I long to see you. He writes to be filled with joy at the glimpse of Timothy. Right? His heart would well up with incredible joy. Even considering where he was. Now, there's another amazing reality here that he writes, because he requests Timothy, like, hey, on your way, stop by and pick up Mark. Probably no easy feat. I don't know where Mark was. Maybe he was at Troas or somewhere on the journey to Rome. He knew where Mark was, and he was to stop and grab him and bring him with him. What do we know of Mark? This is John Mark. This is Barnabas' cousin. We read in Acts a little bit tidbit of what takes place. Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to set off on their second missionary journey. And, uh, and, and Barnabas is like, hey, I want my cousin John Mark to come with us. Paul says, no way. And we just get a little bit of tidbit in that narrative that tells us at a previous ministry time, they were in Pamphylia, and Mark was supposed to go with them. And Mark said, not going. And he left and deserted them and went home. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. But, but Paul at that time was like, hey, that's a quitter, man. I don't need a quitter on my team. <laughs> You're a loser. <laughs> we don't need someone who's going to leave us stranded somewhere. Like, that's his history. That's his pattern. So he's not coming with us. And what happened? Paul and Barnabas get into an argument and they end up splitting up. I don't know if Barnabas and Paul ever reconciled their relationship, but what does this tell us here? Paul and Mark sure did. At some point, some point, you know, since that time, their uh, relationship was reconciled, right? It was healed. And look at, look what Paul says here. Now, he wasn't useful to him back then in Acts 13, but here he's like, get Mark. He's useful to me for ministry. He's useful. That's awesome. That gives us all hope. If you're a loser, there's hope for you. <laughs> but I love this in the context of, of the relationships here, right? Because here he mentions Demas, a close friend who betrays him. And then he mentions Mark, a close friend who also betrayed him, but is now reconciled to him, right? They're reconciled. He had felt the sting of betrayal in ministry. He'd been let down, but, but God restored something like this. 
I was thinking of an example in my own life when we started Send Church. There's uh, a brother that started with me, and you know we're gung ho to do this thing together. A year into this, he disappears. And by I mean disappear, I mean disappear. Just stop coming, and his family. No call, no text, no return phone calls. I was like, I don't even know what happened. Four years later, he reaches out to me. And we have lunch, and we reconcile. Now, all that, those feelings of betrayal and hurt that I went through uh, were healed in that moment. You know, and we were able to forgive. And there was really no compelling reason. He just thought it was time to move on. That's <laughs> just not the way to move on. But uh, there's a lesson for us there, too. But you know, let people know. Don't, don't ghost people. It's not good. But we were able to reconcile. And that's the heart of Jesus in all things. So much so, that brother passed away not long ago, and I was able to stand up at his funeral service and share some things about his life and how it impacted me. It's a beautiful moment, just kind of a little beautiful excursus here in all these final things and instructions that, that Paul is giving Timothy. Just like Paul, we all need the blessings of, of, of human friendships, right? Mm -hmm. Especially from our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It grieves me when Christians, they claim their best friends are non-Christians, unbelievers. And they don't have close friendships with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Mm -hmm. Only brothers and sisters in the Lord can encourage you in your faith. Pray for you. Strengthen you when your arms are weak. Be with you in the difficult seasons of life. Lift your arms, right, when you can't lift them yourself. We all need that. We all need that. So in order to have those kind of friends, be that friend yourself. The beautiful thing here is in a few months, Paul's going to be reunited with his friends. Timothy's coming. He's bringing Mark along with him. And history records, in fact, some of the early church fathers have written in their letters uh, that at the time of Paul's departure, these three were with Paul. Luke, Timothy, and Mark. I can't imagine the comfort that must have brought the apostle of the Lord. He already knew his end, but to have his friends there with him in those moments, that made all the difference. The other things he requests here, again, just to show you the humanity of Paul. Hey, Timothy, on your way through Troas, I've left some stuff at Carpus's house. Like, this stuff's in God's word for us. It's so awesome, right? Bring that coat, that fur coat. I don't know if it was like a pig's fur coat, you know. It's going to keep him warm, right? Why did he need that? Well, where was he, right? He's in a dark, dank, cold dungeon, and winter's coming. So he says, bring my coat. And something I love, bring the books. Bring the books. That'd be me at the end there. I don't need anything else but bring my books, you know, and the parchments. I don't know. Scholars have speculated what was in that. What were the books? I don't know. God's word doesn't tell us here what was in the books. What were the parchments? What was? Are those half-finished letters? Were they narratives of the life of Jesus? Maybe other teachings uh, of Jesus, or maybe letters he had started to write to some of the other churches. We have no idea. They were valuable to Paul. They were the very things he needed in this moment of comfort. You know, that he was looking for and consolation, considering uh, where he was at. He, he wanted them. These are practical needs that would have brought comfort <coughs> to the apostle. Basic natural needs, friendship, 
exploded the books and parchments to engage his mind and his soul. Um, these were the needs and the things that Paul requested. But the last thing I want to look at here is what Paul expresses in these moments. It's, it's an expression of the nearness of the presence of the Lord. He writes there at that moment when he is um, at his first offense. Everyone had left him. What does he write? The Lord stood by me. How? I don't know. Was it a physical presence he felt? Was the Lord appear to him in a vision? Hey, I'm right here with you, Paul. I don't know. Maybe it was just the, the assurance he had, the confidence he had, that the Lord was with him. Same thing we believe here. The presence of the Lord is with us now in this moment. God is here. And at that time, he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Strengthened me. He knew God was with them. That was his confidence. Remember how he exhorted uh, Timothy earlier in chapter 2? He said to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He could say that because he's experienced that. He, he encountered that his entire ministry. The Lord was with him and the Lord would strengthen him by his grace. The Lord is with him through every trial and hardship. He may have been physically alone and been deserted by everyone, but he was not really alone. And if, even if everyone deserts you and you're left standing physically alone, you're in Christ, you are not alone. God is with you. He will supply the strength that you need. He will enable you to do just everything that Paul did, to stand firm in the faith. And testify to our Lord Jesus Christ. That reminder of the Lord's nearness, of his presence, of his strength, his enabling, causes him to break out in another moment of spontaneous doxology. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that should cause you and I to break forth in praise, knowing that the Lord is with us. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're never alone. In your darkest hour, you're not alone. In your most difficult hour, you're not alone. In persecution and opposition, if the whole world were against you, you are not alone. The Lord is with you. As Paul issues some final greetings uh, to some of the beloved saints in Ephesus, he also expresses greetings from those that he knew would want to greet Timothy. He also closes this letter reminding Timothy of the Lord's abiding presence. And he does so in that concluding benediction, the last line of this letter. The Lord be with your spirit. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Timothy, as the Lord has been with me, he is with you. As the Lord has enabled me by his grace and strengthened me, he will enable you strengthen you by his grace. Everything Timothy needs to finish this life well, he has in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Everything you and I need to finish this Christian life well for the glory of God is supplied for us graciously in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. To him 